And you can turn over to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to continue with our study through what we call the Disciples' Prayer. And uh, when we, uh, as Christians, when we pray, um, the only prayers that really work <laughs> are the prayers that are in accord with God's will in our lives. And uh, this passage here in Matthew chapter 6 um, basically gives us a model for prayer in, in, in verses 9 through uh, 14 there. And, uh, and that's the intent of this prayer. It wasn't meant to be a prayer that we just recite, recite all the time. It's fine to do that, but it's good to stop and think about what we're saying when we recite it. And so we've been looking at that. And uh, a lot of times when we pray as believers, as Paul says in Romans 8, um, we don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. And so God is here giving us a model that we can take and apply to our prayer lives and say, okay, this is the, the template, you might say, that Jesus is giving us for our, our prayers. And he's trying to help us so that we will understand um, the way the Lord would have us to pray. And so there are very concise statements in this prayer. Uh, it's not many words, but they have deep, deep, deep meaning as we've looked at and so let's read the, the Lord's Prayer there, the Disciples' Prayer, as we call it, in verse 9, and I'll read it for you, and you can follow along in your Bibles. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And uh, we want to focus this morning on this wonderful part of the prayer there in verse 10, your kingdom come. And it's just three simple words in English. It's three simple words in the Greek, but there's a lot of meaning behind those three simple words. And what it does is thy kingdom come really express the one who has the right to rule and the right to uh, reign, you might say. And that person is no other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ himself. And God the Father seeks this. So when we pray this, you're really praying in accord with God's will. Thy kingdom come. In Psalm 2 it says, Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. In other words, God says that he is exalting his son Jesus Christ to king over all. Uh, the Lord has said unto his son, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the world for your possession. See, God wants to give the kingdoms of the world to the son. God desires to set his son, his king, on the holy hill of Zion to reign on the throne of David. And so you remember back in the Old Testament when David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, God said, no, you're a man of blood. You can't do that. <laughs> Sorry. And so he, he took that away from him, but he gave him a joy and God returned to him the promise in 2 Samuel 7 that through your seed, through your, you won't build the house, but through your loins will come a child and of that child shall be built a kingdom which will be an eternal kingdom. It will never end. And so the promise of the kingdom to the king, the son, Jesus Christ, the eternal son, is given in the Old Testament and all over the place. 
you have several verses there you can look at, but there's even more than that. I just listed a couple there for you. And so, in fact, the whole Testament, there is a promise of the coming king, the one who would be born upon whose shoulders would be the government, says Isaiah, uh, the one who would reign and rule and, and have his way here in this earth, a savior, a king, a messiah. And the very word messiah means the anointed one of God, the, right, the one who has the rightful rule and the rightful reign here. And it's important to understand that because when we're praying, God's idea of prayer, God's program when it comes to prayer is a little different than ours. God's program centers on a person, a single person, that person being the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will come again, the one who will reign King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who God wants our prayers to focus on. Um, and you stop and you think of even back in the time of Jesus' day, the hope of Israel was that they would have this, this reigning Messiah come. Obviously, they overlooked Jesus as the Messiah, and they're still looking for a Messiah, unfortunately. And even is the hope of the church. And back then, even the, the secular people wanted someone to, to kind of release them from the bondage of the Roman government. So everybody was pointing to some kind of deliverer. And that's when Jesus Christ came on the scene. And Jesus Christ, the king, will ultimately be the apex in all of history. Everything revolves and will revolve around him. Some people say that history is, you've heard this, his story. You know, you stop and you think every time you sign a check, you're basically acknowledging the fact that Christ was born when you date it. History is, is redemptive, the unfolding of God's plan in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's moving to the point where God will dominate, Christ will dominate all. But that whole plan of God, the whole program of God is centered around that single person, Jesus Christ. And apart from that person, there is no plan of God. And so when we pray, as Jesus says here, thy kingdom come, what that means is, Lord, you reign. You reign. Your reign come, you might say. R-E-I-G-N. Your rule come. is another way to say it. And see, when we're, we're born again, when we're saved, the true child of God concerns himself not so much his own plans and his own you know, purpose and his own dealings in life, but he wants to see the kingdom of God come. He wants to do what God wants him to do. And there's a transition that takes place there in someone's life when they come to Christ. But I think sometimes our own prayers, even as Christians, unfortunately, are nothing more than prayers filled with our kingdom, (laughs) our own plan, our own rule, our reign, our desire, our causes. And then we take them to God and we ask Him to put a rubber stamp on it. And what Jesus is saying here. When he says, thy kingdom come, he's saying, you know what? Don't be concerned about your plan. Don't be concerned about your kingdom. Don't be concerned about your wants, your desires. I got those covered. You should be concerned about my kingdom, my rule, my reign. And you can see throughout all of history from the fall in Genesis, when we we heard about the the seed of the woman who's going to bruise the serpent, serpent's head all the way to the glorification of the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, all that. It's moving slowly to the consummation of Christ's rule and reign. 
ultimately. And that's why the Bible clearly, in a lot of different places, says that his cause, his program, his plan should be what we're kind of concerned about. That should be our preoccupation, not our own plan, our own cause, our own purpose, things like that. But I don't know about you, but that kind of flies in the face of my human nature. You know, whenever you've got to give up something and do what somebody else wants to do instead of yourself, you know, that doesn't come easy. Because our human nature basically says, no, I want my way. I want what's important to me. I mean, have you ever just sat down and criticized your own prayer life? How much of our prayer life is concerned about ourselves? A lot of it. A lot of times that's what we think about. We go to God when we have needs. We go to God when we're in a trouble or we go to God when, you know, we want something or whatever. And it's always focused around us. And that's basically the default nature that we have. It's always going to be about us. Sometimes we just rush into God's presence and we unload our wheelbarrow of needs and wants and then we hightail it out of there. See, and God is saying prayer is much more than that. I want you to commune with me. I want you to spend time with me. You know, nobody likes a child who comes up and says, Hey, Dad, can I have the car keys? Yeah, bye. See you later. <laughs> no thanks, no nothing. Just give me the keys. I'm out of here. And I guess it's always been that way with the human nature because we have a bent toward self. We're a very selfish people because of our sinful nature. And if you fail to understand that, all you have to do is look at a, a life of a baby. From the time they come out of the womb, <laughs> Mary, this will be encouraging to you. From the time they come out of the womb, she's not ready to have her child, a baby screams and cries, and they don't care about anything but themselves. That's it. They have no concern that mom's been up almost 24 hours trying to deal with things or whatever. When they're hungry, they're hungry. You can't go into a baby's nursery and say, oh, you know what, I'm a little busy right now. I'm doing the dishes, but I'll be back in 10 minutes, okay? And walk away. The baby's not going to say, okay, mom, gotcha, and stop crying. No, the baby's going to cry louder. I had a chance to go back this last week to help Crystal and Will move, and they're very thankful, as I wrote in the little thing there in the bulletin, that he allowed me to go back there and help them move. And um, pray for them. They're in this transition. He's out to sea, and she's having to do all this stuff, as most mothers do, but uh, a little difficult, and I... Covet your prayers for her and the kids during this time. But, you know, we went out to dinner the last night we were there, just this little Mexican restaurant, casual place. And, and uh, I said, do you think Gabby would be okay, the little one? She's almost a year old. Oh, she'll be fine. I said, okay, fine. So we get in there, and there's some lady dressed as a clown painting faces. So we sent Mason and Sophia over there, and they were preoccupied. And, and uh, you know, we're sitting there trying to have a conversation, and Gabby's just screaming, just screaming. <laughs> I'm thinking, what's wrong? Is her diaper? What's? And Crystal goes, I don't know. She never does this. You know, she's hungry. So we ordered a quesadilla, and we're shoving quesadilla, cheese quesadilla in her mouth, and she was munching on that for a while. But she was just in one of those moods. It's like, I don't care. I'm going to cause a problem here. And, you know, you couldn't reason with her. She doesn't even, you know, she's just a little baby. Well, you know, most baby under, babies understand one thing. It's me, me, me. I want, I want, I want. They don't care about anything else. And see, and that's the basic nature that we all have. And even when we get older, when you get in your teenage years, when you get in junior high and high school, 
You know, basically, our, our, our children are told that, hey, they're the king of their own castle, and they're determined their own destiny, and, and they're the master of their own fate, and all this stuff, this secular humanism gets pumped into their head, and pretty soon, everything is centered around them. It doesn't matter about anybody else. And we live in a very selfish society. So when we come to the point where Jesus says, your kingdom come, thy kingdom come, that's a big step. But when God invades a life, when God shows someone that they're ultimately a sinner in need of God's grace and they bow at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner, save me. And God does that. He invades their life. And all of a sudden, the command of the word of God is is what you want to pray. It isn't me anymore. It isn't what it's about myself. It's, it's, it's more, God, I want your will done in my life. I want your name to be hollowed in my life, set apart. I want your will to be done. I want your kingdom to come. But that goes against the grain of our human nature. That's never easy. And when you see on TV these television preachers that basically say just the opposite, that you can go to God and demand things, name it and claim it and affirm certain things. And, you know, I speak money into my wallet in Jesus' name and it's just supposed to magically appear there. I mean, that's just crazy. That's totally against what God has laid out for us in Scripture. The one person that that God is concerned with as far as His will being done and everything centers around, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you genuinely come to Christ and you confess Jesus as Lord and King of your life, that's what salvation is. It's nothing less than that. You can't come to Jesus just as your Savior. I remember in my school there was a professor that taught, well, you can come to Jesus as your Savior and then you can make Him Lord of your life a little later on. I don't think so. That's not what the Scriptures say. The Scripture says that Jesus is Lord and we acknowledge that Lordship and that's the only way to come to Christ for salvation. You can't say, well, I want the salvation thing, but I'm not going to do anything you say, Lord, sorry. It doesn't work that way. And that's a very important point because there's a lot of people in our our, our churches today that are, you know, kind of sitting there almost ignorant of the fact that they're lost because they feel they walked an hour, they raised a hand, or they did something in their life somewhere to acknowledge that, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. And then everybody says, oh, now you're a Christian, now you're a Christian, now you're a Christian. And there's no change in their life. They don't have any desire to pray, they don't have any desire to read the Bible, they don't have any desire to fellowship with people, they don't have any desire to come to church, they don't have any desire to serve God, but they hold on to the one point in their life where they raised a hand or they walked down an aisle or they did something through a stick and a fire or something that signified a commitment to Christ. And see, salvation is so much more than those things. In the day and age we live in today, churches want to take the gospel message, which is a rather limited and narrow view of salvation. God doesn't say there's many ways to Christ. He says there's one, or many ways to God. He says there's one way through my son, Jesus Christ. The road is narrow that leads to life, broad that leads to destruction. And see, we need to acknowledge that. And see, we can buy into that really quickly when we're out there evangelizing and we're out there sharing with, with unbelievers the, the message of the gospel and we're always tempted to kind of just bring it down, bring the gospel message down, lower the commitment just so we can close the deal. And so then we have somebody saying that they're a Christian when in fact nothing's been done in their heart. 
And we're really leading people down a road of deception and ultimate damnation in hell. And so when we pray, thy kingdom come, we really are affirming that, you know what? I want to relinquish control of my own life. It's not about me anymore, to God. It's about what you want in me. It's about filling me with your spirit, you taking control of me and, and allowing me to do what you want me to do, whatever it is. So you can't put God in a box. You can't say, well, I'll do anything but this. I remember in school, college, after I became a Christian, I was going to Bible college, and, and I'm thinking, God, I'll do anything, but you know, I, I, this Africa missions thing is not my deal. Mosquitoes, all that stuff, I'm not into that. You know, and I was, I was putting God in this box. I'll do anything, Lord, but this. And finally, one of the professors at a time in chapel, and he talked about that very thing. And, and it wasn't until I finally said, God, I'll do anything. I don't care. It may even be going to Africa, whatever. That's fine. If that's what you want me to do, I'm sure I'll be fine with it. And when I began to understand the sovereignty of God in my life, I began to relinquish control of my life, and then I could relax and say, okay, every day's a party with God almost. You wake up, and it's like, God, I don't know what's going to happen today, but I know you do. And I don't know where I'm going to serve you but you do i remember after i graduated you were supposed to the year of my graduation you're supposed to do an internship somewhere and i had the slightest idea what i was doing i mean i just went to school i was a brand new christian i was just trying to get a grasp of what god's word said the basics of it okay i didn't you know i i couldn't say all the books of the bible i didn't know you know half of the old patriarchs from the new new testament guys i didn't know anything and so when I went to school, and the final year I was there, I was there three years because I'd already had a degree and, and kind of just worked on, on this degree as an extra thing. And so three years there, and, and my final year, they said, well, you've got to go get involved in church. I'm like, okay, what do I do? I don't know what to do. I didn't go to school to be a youth pastor. I didn't go to school to be a pastor. I, didn't, I just went to school because I thought, well, I'm a Christian, and I want to know more about God and his word. And I feel God's calling me into ministry somehow, but I don't know why. And I remember kind of panicking, thinking, what, what do I do? And finally, I went up to the board there at the school in the hallway, and it had opportunities, and there was a church, Fairhaven's Baptist Church, over in Spring Valley, California, about 20 minutes away from the school, and they were looking for somebody to teach Sunday school. Never dealt with kids before, I mean, other than, you know, nephews and nieces kind of thing. I didn't have a burning heart, my desire to be a youth pastor, nothing. And I remember going over there and talking to Pastor Jerry Jack was his name, and he's a real nice guy, and we kind of hit it off. And, and he goes, well, yeah, we're, we haven't had anybody, uh, you know, apply yet, so if you're willing to take us on, you know, we could work through you through the semester and see how it goes. And I said, okay, whatever. What do I do? Well, 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 we'll give you all the details on Sunday. I'm like, okay. He goes, you'll be teaching a high school class. I said, okay, that's fine. So I'm thinking, well, you know. So I, I'm thinking I'm going to get there Sunday and somebody else is going to be teaching the class. I'm going to sit there for a couple of weeks and get to know the kids. Uh-uh. Okay, kind of a small church. I walk in. They're like, yeah, here's the book. They're downstairs. <laughs> room B. I'm like, who's downstairs? What room? I don't, how do you get downstairs? I mean, I didn't know anything. And I remember walking into the class and three of the kids were the pastor's kids. And, and it was just crazy. I mean, you know, I opened up the thing to the date and I'm like, oh, some Old Testament thing we're supposed to teach on. And, you know, I'm just reading the stuff out of the the book. That's the first time I saw it. And I just remember thinking, boy, I don't know about this. But I remember through that process, I had to literally give up what I had in mind for ministry. I didn't have anything in mind. 
And then slowly God just kind of worked in my heart and tugged on my heart and said, you know, you can have an influence in these kids' lives. And I started to get plugged in and we started a youth group. And, you know, it's just one thing after the other. But I always found myself satisfied where I was at, where I was serving. And, and, and God always seemed to bless that in some way. And I was never, you know, I'm not the kind of guy to look down the road and bigger and better. I just, that's not in my nature. I just thought, you know what, if God has me here, that's fine. If God moves me on, hey, that's fine. Whatever, God. Whatever you want. And see, that, that really gives you a peace in your life when you can get to that point. You know, and you, you, I have to be reminded of that. Because our default is, no, I want my way. <laughs> I want to do what I want to do. And see, that immediate confrontation when you pray, thy kingdom come, immediately you, you begin to realize, whoa, there is an enemy. And there is somebody out there who, who wants to kind of dissuade you from following the way that Christ has laid out for you. And it's in our society. It's, 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 it's everywhere. We've lost the preoccupation with the things of God. We're so preoccupied with this life and, and what's in this world. I mean, even within the church. You know, you've got a big election coming up in the fall and, and everybody's talking, who's going to... You know what? Whoever's going to be the president is going to be the president. God has that already planned out, beloved. I'm not saying you don't get involved. You don't exercise your right to vote. Hopefully you vote for a biblical candidate and you feel good with that or you prayed about it, whatever. It doesn't matter what party they're from as long as they hopefully line up with the principles in God's word. And sometimes it's kind of hard to find those kind of people. But you know what? God has given us the right to vote in our country and we should exercise that. But let us not think that by doing that, that somehow we're going to save America. See, the problem is, is that we've got lots of problems in our country today. We've got the problem over in Iraq. We've got problems in our own country dealing with economics and politic, politics and the education thing. All this humanism of, our, of, our, of the world is creeping in and the morality of everything is just going down, down, down. You have all sorts of deviancy out there and, and it's almost exalted. I was on a plane from Phoenix, Arizona to Las Vegas, and you think that this, this plane was the party plane. I mean, these people were going there, obviously it was on Friday, so they were going there for the weekend to party. And I mean, just boldly talking about things in the plane. That I mean, I was turning red just because I thought, God, I can't believe they're saying these things. And they weren't, they weren't concerned about it. They really didn't care. And that's where the morality in our country has coming to. And people say, well, is it going to get worse? Yeah, it is. I mean, there may come a time when, you know what, you come up to preach a, a, a sermon against homosexuality, you could be arrested. That could happen. So are we going to not do that? Or are we going to fulfill God's calling on our life and continue to preach the truth of God and let the consequences be what the consequences are? You end up in jail, you end up in jail. And I don't think that's too far out. Classifying it as hate speech. See, people say, well, aren't you concerned about the country? Aren't you concerned about where it's going and all this? Obviously, I mean, I love the United States of America. It's a wonderful place to live. And I totally enjoy and, and a patriot and all that stuff, the freedom that we have here. But you know what? It's not about America. It's about God's kingdom. See, and, and the problem is, is the church has bought into, well, it's all about this, you know, this social program that we've got to change. 
Proverbs 14.37 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. You know, that's built into every country, to every nation, that promise there. And America will not last because no, ever, no, not, no nation will ever last because built into it are the seeds of its own sinfulness. And we can see how when we rapidly abandon the things of God, how society just takes a nosedive. America is not the issue. The issue is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, His causes. If that's our concern, then you know what? Whatever you know, touches that concern, that's great, but we don't need to be overly concerned about things that we cannot control. And one day, this nation, too, unfortunately, will fall. I mean, we can't believe that now. But that's what's going to happen. You know, there's certain things that people can take away from you, but there's other things that they can't. They can take away your freedom. You can be put in jail. As in some countries, if you're a Christian, you're persecuted, you're put in jail. Some pastors are arrested. You know, they can take the car, the house, all the little trinkets we have, whatever it is, but you know what? They can never take the love that I have for my wife and her love for me. They can never take the love that I have for my children or their love for me. They can never take the love that I have for God's people or their love for me. They can never touch my friendships with people. They can never touch Christ in my life. They can never touch anything in the kingdom. So why are we so preoccupied about things that they can't touch? That's why we don't want to get sidetracked on the things of this world. Because as Christians, we should be in the business of being committed to the kingdom. And the kingdom will go on. The Bible says the gates of hell will never prevail against it. Nations will come and go, including America, if Jesus tarries. But the issue is his kingdom, not our country. Doesn't mean we don't pray for our leaders. We should pray that God works in their lives and that they do the things that God wants them to do. We're commanded to do so. Doesn't mean we just sit back and give up on everything. I'm not saying that. But he's told us over and over again that he wants his kingdom to be established. Back in verse 5, he says, Don't pray like the hypocrites do, who love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. He says, Don't pray to get your own gain. You know, that's not what it's about. And we looked at that. We looked at, at the fatherhood of God and, and what that means to have a father who we can call Abba Father. But right after that, last week, we looked at the priority of God and it says, hallowed be thy name. It means that God's name is all that he is. And to hallow his name means to set it apart in our lives, to glorify it, to honor it. And we gave you four ways last week how you can do that. You can believe that he is. You can believe who he is. You can be committed to His presence in your life and you can also obey His Word. And that's what God tells us. That's what Jesus tells us here in this prayer. Our Father, hallowed in heaven, hallowed be Your name. 
And then we come to the third part here, your kingdom come. You know, in, in the Jewish commentary known as the Talmud, which is basically a commentary on God's word, God's law, it says this, that prayer in which there is no mention of the kingdom of God is no prayer at all. Prayer in which there's no mention of the kingdom of God, there's no prayer at all. See, the kingdom is the heart of the matter here. The kingdom is that for which God has focused history around. He wants to rule, he wants to reign, that he may be supreme. And it's he that should come first in our prayers. Before we go into his presence, just blurting out whatever we need. We don't even stop to consider what his cause may be, or what his kingdom is, what his will is. It's hard to do that because of, like I said, we get sidetracked because Satan is not you know, just idly sitting by. He's actively working, trying to get us focused on the things of this world over and over and over. And you look at the progression here. First, you, you acknowledge his name. Hallowed be your name. In my life, Lord, let your name be holy. And then he says, your kingdom come, and then your will be done. See, there's a progression there. God's will is not going to be done in your life if you're not setting apart his name in your life, if you're not willing to say, your kingdom come, your reign be done, your rule in my life be done. Let's look at what this three words say here, what they mean. The first word there, thy, it's a simple pronoun. It just talks about that, that, that it's, it's God's will that we're talking about. The second word, kingdom, is kind of interesting. It, it should really be translated rule or reign, because that's what it means. See, when we think of kingdom, what do you think about? You think of forts, and you think of big walls, and you know uh, kings and queens, and, and maybe Disneyland or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what you think about when you think of kingdom. But it has nothing to do with any of that. The word basically means to rule or to reign. And that's what God wants to happen. He wants His rule, His reign to come. Remember when Jesus was before Pilate and Pilate asked Him, Are you a king? (laughs) Looking at this guy, are you a king? I mean, whoever saw a king like you? That's kind of what he, was, what he was saying. And Jesus replied, what? My kingdom is what? Not of this world. See, they were looking for a kingdom in this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Sorry. So it's, it's, it's not talking about the kingdom as far as we think about it. It's really talking about the rule and reign of Christ. It's the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ. That's what we're to pray for. And then the third word there, come, it's interesting because in the, in the original language, it means to let it come and let it come immediately. Let it come completely without holding back anything. So I want to ask three questions this morning. First of all, whose kingdom are we talking about? Whose is the kingdom? And that's the first word there, your kingdom come, thy kingdom come. 
If you go back to verse 9, you see who he's talking about. See, it's always important to understand the context. You can't just say, well, whose kingdom is it? Well, it goes, you go back to verse 9, it says, our what? Father. So it's talking about God's kingdom. It's talking about the, the Father's kingdom. It's not a human kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom. It's God's kingdom. The Bible clearly says that we're not involved in a human kingdom. That's not, that shouldn't be our priority. In Philippians 3.20, it says we're sojourners or we're pilgrims. In other words, we're just passing through. We sing that song, you know, we're just passing through. 1 Peter 1.17, our citizenship is where? It's in, not here. It's in heaven. Hebrews 11.10 says that we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. And unfortunately, the church has kind of gotten off track here in so many different ways. We have people that want to worry about how they can preserve the church through political influences in society. And it can't be done. There's no human institution made that can dovetail with the kingdom of God. See, and what happens is when Christians kind of want to do that, they get political, and then they find themselves in all sorts of weird situations. Because you can't advance the kingdom through the politics of any society. I was reading this past week, and one writer said that's one of the tragedies of America. In the early years, basically, our country was a Christian nation, more or less. At least far greater than it is today. And the leaders of the country were Christians. And what happened was, as the church relinquished to the government certain rights. They let the government take over for the caring of the widows and take over for the caring of the orphans and the welfare system. And they let the government do it because the government was basically made up of mostly Christians. So they thought, well, this is okay. This will work out fine. And then we wake up today and we find the government basically a secular institution that's filled with mostly non-Christians, and they're still controlling some of these things, and we say, how do we get these things back? See, that's what the church is called to do. We're not talking about a man-made kingdom here. They come and go. You think about it throughout history. Egypt came and went. Syria came and went. Assyria came and went. Babylon came and went. Medo-Persia came and went. Roman came and went. All these things happened. Alexander the, the, the Great conquered everything from Europe all the way to India and the northern of Europe into Egypt and, and, and it's all gone. There's nothing left of that great empire. If you study history, they tell us that 21 great civilizations, all of which have existed at one point, are now extinct. In the book of Daniel, it talks about the image of the different nations. And at one point it says, God has numbered the kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighted in the balance and found wanting. Thy kingdom is divided. And that night the Medes and the Persians came through the gates and wiped out the Babylonian Empire. See, all the kingdoms of the world go by the way of the flesh. Power of sin, decay, and, and destruction, all that are inevitable. And that's what's going to happen. Inevitably, it's going to happen to this country. 
And so our cause should be God's cause. I mean, we love our country dearly. But you know what? There's something greater than our country. It's the kingdom of God. And we need to be preoccupied with what goes on in the kingdom of God. His kingdom should be the issue in our lives. Not my kingdom, but His kingdom. That's what the Lord meant when He said, You seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. And you know what? Everything else will be taken care of for you. Your clothing, your housing, your food, all those things I'll take care of. If you seek my kingdom... So what our prayer is to be then, Lord, I pray that you will do whatever advances your kingdom in my life. Whatever it is. Whatever brings you rule and reign in my life. Because I know that it says that it's your kingdom. It's not mine. Second question, what is the kingdom? What is it? Stop and think about that. What are we talking about when we're talking about the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ? I mean, there's a lot to be said on this, and we're not going to say it all this morning. But what is the kingdom? When it says, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. The kingdom of God, that phrase is used throughout Scripture. The kingdom of heaven is a phrase that's, and the kingdom of God is used more than any other phrase by Jesus himself. He's constantly talking about the kingdom. He's constantly talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In fact, when he came, it says that he said, Repent for what? The kingdom is at hand. In Luke 4, 43, he says, I must preach the kingdom of God, for therefore I am sent. In other words, whatever this kingdom is, it's the heart of the message of Christ. It's what he's concerned about. It's the heart of his plan. It's the heart of history. It's the heart of everything. The rule and reign of Christ is the center of everything. Nothing else matters. He spent all of his years, even though they were limited, the ones with his disciples, when he was teaching them, he taught them the kingdom, the kingdom, over and over and over again, whether it was through stories or parables or just direct teaching. And then when he died and he rose again, he had 40 days to share with people. And in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3, it says that he appeared to his disciples and he gave them commandments pertaining to what? The kingdom of God. Jesus is preoccupied with the kingdom of God. He spoke of the kingdom in three different ways, actually three different times. He spoke of it in the past, dealing with the Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob in, in Matthew 8, 11. He dealt with it, speaking of it in the present in Luke seventeen twenty one. He said the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, it's presently right here, right now. And he also spoke of it in the future right here. He says, your kingdom come. It's a future idea about the kingdom. And you say, well, how can something be past, present, and future all at the same time? Because it's not of this world. It's not an earthly kingdom we're talking about. It's a heavenly kingdom. It's a supernatural kingdom. It's, it's a kingdom that has been, that is, and that will be all at the same time. Because it's just like God. It's 
That's why when they nailed Jesus to the cross, they were thinking, oh, this guy's a political king. He's a political kind of rebel. That's why they put on his cross, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, mocking him. What kind of king is this? They didn't understand when Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. See, they were looking for a kind of kingdom that they saw around them every day. And sometimes we fall into that same trap. There's two different elements in this kingdom that we're talking about. There's a universal element to it, and there's an earthly element to it. One covers the whole universe. The other covers kind of what's related to the earth. Look at the universal kingdom in a sense that God is king of the whole universe. He rules and reigns over the whole earth. I mean, He made it, He runs it, and He'll bring it to its fruition, to consummation in the end. He's a universal king. Psalm 145.13 says, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord rules over all. First Chronicles 29 Verse 11 and 12 says, uh, you reign over all. Jeremiah 10.10 says, thou art an everlasting king. Psalm 29.10 says, the Lord sits king forever. Over and over we see in Scripture that this universal kingdom is something that's not of this world. It's eternal. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Everything revolves around Christ. Paul said to Timothy, He is called the King Eternal, only wise, speaking of Jesus Christ. See, God is the universal King, and He, he, he rules and He reigns through His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 10 says, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's kind of a parallelism in the original languages. And out of the Hebrew and the Old Testament, that's what they would do. They would take something and kind of parallel it and they would compare it to each other. It says, Thy kingdom come in earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. We could even say, hallowed be thy name as in earth as it is in heaven. Because God's name is holy in heaven. Is God's will done in heaven? Absolutely. Is his rule and reign established in heaven? Absolutely. So what we're asking when we say your kingdom come, we're asking that it would be established where? Here on earth. That's the essence of this. That the universal kingdom of heaven be established here on earth. The prayer is that it would come to earth. That's one thing that Satan does not want to see. But the universal kingdom is eternal and he's not going to be able to prevent it even though he try. But that should be what we're concerned about. See, his name isn't always hallowed on the earth, but it always is in heaven. His will is not always done here on earth, but it is in heaven because of sin. See, the purpose of prayer is to bring his kingdom to earth that he might put out sin and clean this place up and put down rebellion, put down evil, exalt righteousness. That's the purpose. 
God's hallowed name, God's kingdom, God's will. You say, well, that'll never happen. Oh, yes, it will. It's going to happen. And when it does, when Christ returns and he brings his universal kingdom back to earth in the millennial reign, all of a sudden, the universal kingdom and the earthly kingdom of God become one. And the Bible says that he will rule and reign here on earth. Does the world need the rule of Christ? (laughs) You bet it does. And there's going to come a day when it's going to get it. It says that he will rule with a rod of iron. In other words, now we, we, we have Jesus as the Savior. He's filled with grace and mercy and compassion. Well, when he comes back, you're not going to see that side of Jesus. He's going to come back to rule and to reign as a king. And his rule and reign will be absolute. And he'll squash any rebellion immediately. He's coming back to judge. When we think about that, that's why we encourage people to come to the Savior. Don't wait till Jesus becomes the judge because when you hear, here comes the judge, it's too late. Party's over. Whose kingdom is it? It's his. What is this kingdom? The kingdom in mind here is his rule on earth. Third question, and here's the heart of this whole thing. How does it come? How do we have the kingdom of of God come to earth? It says, thy kingdom come. The Greek says, let it come and let it come now. How do we let it come? How do we get it to come? How do we bring his kingdom to earth? How is this prayer answered? A couple different ways. First of all, conversion. (laughs) How can you bring the rule and reign of Christ to earth? By conversion. I think really it's, it's, an, it's kind of a missionary prayer. It's an evangelistic prayer. Christ reigns in my life. And when he does, his rule and his reign are brought to earth. My question is, is he ruling and reigning in your life? Have you been converted? Have you been transformed from the, 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 the darkness into the light by his grace? In Luke 17, he said, Don't look for the kingdom here and there. People say, Where's the kingdom? Where's the kingdom? Where's the kingdom? All, there's all this stuff about the kingdom. He says, Don't look here and there for the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is, is here in your midst. He was standing right there with them and they didn't even recognize him. See, he is the kingdom. He can't separate Christ from his kingdom. When you acknowledge Christ in your heart, in your life, you're bringing the rule and reign of Christ down to this earth. That's what he has in mind. You think of the the Christmas carol that we sing all, all the time, Joy to the World, the Lord is come. What do we think of? We think of Bethlehem and all that kind of stuff. See, that's not really what the hymn writer had in mind. Because it goes on, it says, Let earth receive her, what? King. And then it tells us how. Let every heart do what? Prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. See, when you allow Christ into your heart, when you bow 
your sinful soul before a holy God and say, God, I'm in need of your grace and your mercy and, and I need your cleansing of my sin. He comes into your life and He transforms your heart. He makes you a brand new person in Christ. He forgives your sin. And you taste of the goodness and graciousness of God. And He takes up residence right within you through the Holy Spirit. And that's what conversion is. See, the reason we talk to people about Christ, the reason we want to share the gospel with people is so that He could rule and reign in their hearts. Romans says, why do we preach? In Romans 1, he says, we do it for the sake of His name. In 3 John 7, when we go out preaching, we go out preaching in whose name? For the sake of His name. We don't just share Christ with people so that our church would get bigger. Unfortunately, that's how some churches think. That's a little self-centered, I would say. The reason to become a Christian is in order to glorify God and exalt His name and His kingdom, you have to. There's no other way to do it. And it begins there with the invitation. That's the first part of it. The invitation, God invites us. It's like we're coming to a feast. He invites us to come to Him. Secondly, it involves repentance. It involves a change of mind, a change of attitude about who God is and who you are. All of a sudden we begin to realize, wow, I am in need of a Savior and I do have sin in my life and I have uh, kind of fallen short of God's high calling and high mark and I'm not holy like God's holy and yeah, I'd like to go to heaven one day and the only way to get there is through Christ because that's what the Bible says. So we need to change our attitude. We need to repent. And then you have to kind of have some form of an act of will. You can't just wake up one day and say, now I'm a Christian. You have the invitation, you have the repentance, and then you have the ability to say, you know what, Jesus, I acknowledge you as Lord of my life. See, that's what salvation is about. And it's something that happens in the heart. It's not something that happens just because you walk down a, 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 an aisle or you raise a hand or whatever. It's something that God does in your heart. How should you respond to, to the invitation that Christ gives us? First of all, Matthew 6.33 says we should seek His kingdom and His righteousness. I'd ask you this morning, are you doing that? Are you seeking the kingdom of God that it would be established in your life? Are you seeking your own kingdom? Luke 16.16 says this, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, talking about John the Baptist, since then, here's what it says, the gospel of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. See, there are a lot of ways to interpret that, but one of the ways is that it really means to enter kind of violently when people whose hearts are right see the kingdom, they're in a hurry to rush into it. They don't need to be talked into it. They literally seize it violently. They, they desire it. And that's what God does in the heart. He changes our attitude so that we can seek His kingdom. We should value the kingdom of God. Matthew 13, Jesus says, the kingdom is like a treasure 
Think of some earthly treasures that you have, maybe a piece of jewelry or, or uh, something that you had in your antique or something in your house or whatever that you really value. Well, that's what we should value is have that same feeling, that same attitude toward the kingdom of God. By faith, we should hold on to it. And unfortunately, lip service won't do. It's not one thing. Oh, yeah, I value the kingdom. And then you live like you don't. I mean, think about it. The Bible says very clearly, many are going to come to the Lord Jesus Christ on that day and say, Lord, Lord. (laughs) They're, They're actually going to say those words. Lord, Lord, haven't we done this in your name? Haven't we healed this person? Haven't we cast out these? Haven't we done all these wonderful things in your name? And Jesus is going to turn to them and say, you know what? I'm sorry, depart from me. I never knew you. See, they thought because they were doing certain things or because they were, you know, putting certain things on and kind of living this hypocritical life that they could fool God. You can't fool God. God knows the way of your heart. He wants you to value his kingdom. And the last thing is just receive it. You need to receive it. You need to receive the invitation of Christ. It's not difficult. It's something that he cries out for you to do. That should be our response to Christ's invitation of his kingdom coming in our hearts personally. So it's the conversion of unbelievers. Thirdly, here in closing, it's also the commitment of believers. You know, you may say this, well, I'm already a Christian, this doesn't apply to me. Well, it does. See, when we pray, Lord... May our program and your reign and your rule kind of all drive together. You're praying that people's hearts will be open to the rule and reign of Christ. That's kind of what we want here. And it applies to us as believers as well, not just non-Christians. There's many days you get up, At least I'll say for myself, I get up, I don't want to do what God has called me to do for that day, whatever it may be. Flesh kicks against it. You don't want to do it, whatever. And you have to be committed to to whatever God's calling you to do. In Romans 14, 17, Paul said this, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. In other words, the kingdom of God is not on the outside, is what he's saying. The kingdom of God is not external. And he says this, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. Are you committed to those things in your life? Sometimes we lose those aspects of of those different elements in our lives as we grow older in our faith and pretty soon we're kind of discouraged and we just kind of fall into a routine in our, our faith. And I was talking to someone this morning and I said, hey, how are you doing this morning? He said, you know what? I woke up this morning, my heart was beating. It's a great day. And I thought, what a good attitude. That is just wonderful. I mean, wouldn't it be the guy that we would all have that kind of attitude? Rather than roll out of bed, oh, yeah, I've got to go through another day. Just thank God that your lungs are working and your heart's beating. That you're able to see and hear. Maybe even if you have to use some device to help you hear. Thank God for the technology that's available. So we need to be committed as believers to that kind of 
push that every day that, you know what, we're going we're gonna to live each day for the fullest for God and, and that his kingdom would be established in our lives. It's not about us. And the last thing there, it's going to commence with Christ's earthly rule. One day the heavens are going to split open and Jesus will descend and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. You know, when we were over there in Israel and we saw that, I mean, I couldn't help but think, wow, this is where this is going to happen. How amazing. He'll come back for a thousand year rule here on earth. The Bible says with the rod of iron and the world will finally hear the answer to this prayer that we've been praying. May your universal kingdom become the earthly kingdom. And for a thousand years it says he will rule and reign in righteousness, justice, truth, and peace. And at the end of that time of the kingdom, it will phase into the universal kingdom and never again will it ever be, the, be a distinction between those two. 